And to be perfectly honest, that was the first time that I'd actually done it as a coach. And all of a sudden, to see that boy's confidence grow, it changed me as a person. Welcome to the Liverpool FA podcast. Our aim is to provide regular insight from a variety of experts to help you in your own football journey. We'll do it through interviews, roundtable discussions and by linking to other resources to help support you. For more information about each episode, just tap the album art, which will provide you with more about our guests and links to further content. In this episode, we speak with Keith Webb, Keith is a regional coach development manager at the FA, who has previously coached at Norwich City, Kings Lynn and Winnipeg Phoenix. Keith is a former head coach of the England men's cerebral palsy team and led the Team GB cerebral palsy football squad at Rio in 2016. Keith was kind enough to share with us a rich reflective journey through his coaching career, which provides an insight into how the culture of coaching and football has changed over the last 30 years. Keith shared some powerful anecdotes some of which unfortunately had to be cut out. But nevertheless, we think it should provide for a good listen. A key technical lesson learnt in this episode would be don't put ice in the water. Enjoy. Keith Webb, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We are here at St George's Park. It is a lovely late June evening. We've had a brilliant day down in Worcester as part of a course that we're doing. And... Keith, you and I, as a team of coach educators, took on a team of coach mentors in our delivery team and happy to say we've returned victorious. Absolutely. (laughs) Our uh, technical... uh, I've got so much more respect for rowers now, it's unbelievable. Mm. We'll get into more of that story as we go along through this episode. To start us off... We're going to dive into your coaching journey. So uh, we'll work back from your role now. So tell us about what you do on a daily basis for, for the FA and what that entails, and then we'll, we'll track back from there. Okay, well, uh, on a daily basis, uh, I work as a county coach developer in Norfolk. Um, it's been a, my home all my life, apart from maybe a short period of time when I went over to Canada to work. But... Um, yeah, mainly it's around the development of coaches from levels one and hopefully now with the new uh, level three coming out, it will cover the um, courses one, two and three. And um, it's around supporting coaches in their environment, delivering of courses and uh, hopefully generally just trying to improve the quality of coaching throughout the county. Great. And, and how long have you been in the role? As a county coach developer, um, about 18 months now. Before that, I was um, I joined the FA as an RCDM. Which means? Uh, regional Coach Development Manager. Um, responsibility for 12 and above. Came into the organisation when there were just 16 RCDMs. Um, and uh, it was a job that I'd always wanted if you like it was throughout my coaching career there were opportunities to uh, apply for the role of a RCDM to me that was the pinnacle of a 
what I wanted or thought Cooch should be. And um, I think it was after about the fourth or fifth interview that I was lucky enough to um, be offered the role. I was out in Canada at the time, funnily enough. Um, I'd just moved out there uh, as a player and coach developer. Out there, it's a different um, different culture. So I stayed in a place called Winnipeg. Um, and if you've ever seen Ice Road Truckers, you know how severe the winters get out there. And there's a short period of time, a little window where they play outfield football. I was sort of in charge of coach development and player development of a club that had over 400 players and uh, 40 coaches. It was an experience, but I did miss the English game, I must admit. And when I saw the opportunity to um, that came up with regards to the RCDM role in the East, um, I applied and uh, thankfully I was lucky and successful in that application. The reason why I wanted you to come on and, and record an episode is I think you've got some... I don't know too many coaches who've got such a vast array of experiences as yourself. Tell us how you got into coaching, how old you were when you first started and and why that happened, if you can, and then we'll talk about the key milestones from there. Okay, well, I first got into coaching about six months after I finished playing. It wasn't due to injury or anything like that. It was a case that I was told by... Norwich City at the time that I wasn't good enough uh, to be signed on as a professional but there was a job in the office in administration and being someone who was quite self-aware of what my limitations were and the chances of me becoming a professional footballer were limited I decided to delve it or jump at the chance of working at a professional football club and how old were you at this point I was 18 at this that particular time yeah and it was just at the start when the FA started to um, think around player development. Norwich City at the time had a really good youth policy and they were um, producing players and they'd put a lot of effort into, um, into the youth policy there. And one of the um, things that they brought in was the introduction of a feeder club that played on a Sunday where all the schoolboys could come and play and they needed somebody to run the team administratively and to assist on the um, coaching side and as I'd just finished playing and obviously working in the office at the time it was um, ideal for me to get involved so as soon as I'd finished playing that short space of time I was already sort of dealing with 16 to 18, no, sorry, 15 to 16 year olds at that particular time. And then from there, they were then selected to become apprentices at the uh, the football club. So I was dealing with quite a a good player at that particular time. And then things started to build. And um, one of the jobs that sort of was a mine during a match day at the football club was to make sure that I got in quite early and then after the game was to make sure that everything was secure. So one game, Ron Greenwood had come as a guest of John Bond um, to um, view his son, Kevin. And Ron Greenwood at this time was? The England manager. Yeah, and what places, what year was this, roughly? This must have been round about 19... 
81, 82. So you were 18 years old. 18, 19 yeah. years old. And, uh, Just giving your age away there. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't like to do that too many times. Um, but... Yeah, he came along to see, and I think Kevin had just broken into the under-23s at the time. But anyway, I was doing my rounds as I uh, was doing, making sure everything was secure. John Bond had a little room off the boardroom at that particular time where he used to entertain his guests. For some unknown reason, I just checked the door and all of a sudden it opened. I was expecting it to be locked. And inside, the room was full of who's who of football. Ron Greenwood was sitting there. There were a couple of other scouts and managers. And um, John Bond and the rest of the coaching staff were holding court. And it was quite a lively place, to be honest. And there was a lot of drink. I do remember that. And John Bond said, come on, Keith, come and have a drink with us. And I thought, no, I've been there a long time. It's been a long day. I want to get away. I said, no, Gaffer, that's fine. I'll... No, no, come and sit down. And the only space that was available to me was where Ron Greenwood was sitting and seat away from him was Ken Brown, John Bond's assistant at the time. So the shy person I was, and I mean I was shy at that particular time, um, I sat down between Ken Brown and Ron Greenwood and, you know just listening to the football banter that was going on at the time between these coaches and Ron Greenwood. And then for some unknown reason, Ron Greenwood started to talk to me. And I'm sort of, you know, a bit shy. And he asked me what I did at the football club and um, did I like playing? And I explained to them that I was helping with the Sunday team and running things like that. And he said, well, have you ever thought about coaching? And I said, well, I'm doing this job there but I haven't thought about getting any qualifications or anything like that and Ken Brown started to join in the conversation and the two of them started to talk about John Lyle who was the West Ham manager at the time and the the fact that John and uh, Ken were player um, teammates with John um, and the experience that Ron Greenwood and John Lyle had a similar situation where uh, John Lyle had to give the game up because of um, injury and how Ron had then um, developed him as a coach, if you like, and pushed him into that sort of area. And Ken Brown, out of the blue, just said, we're going to do that with you, Keith. Now, at the time, I looked at Ken and I thought to myself, I'm not sure he isn't three quarters drunk. And I thought nothing more about it, to be honest. So I drank my coat and uh, shook Ron Greenwood's hand and um, thought nothing more of it. Off I went. Anyway, the next day, um, Ken Brown came in to um, speak to me. And he said, the professionals have got a bespoke coaching course for the prelim coming up next week. You're going to be on it. Um, the prelim was? It was like the preliminary badge to the full badge. It was like the level one, if you like, mm. of the coaching qualification at the time because it was the prelim and then the full badge. And I'm a little bit apprehensive because now all of a sudden I'm in an environment where there are senior professionals and I've got to work with them and coach them at a time. And I wasn't sure about it, but he said, look, don't worry about passing or anything like that. Just get the experience of dealing with players. So I went 
on the course and I have to say I took to it like a duck to water because I'd had that experience of working with players in the Sunday team it just gave me the confidence to stand in, so in front of someone and actually tell them what to do at that particular time it was around the coaches spotting a mistake putting it right and then getting out seeing professional players struggle with that really was uplifting to me and I know it's not a nice thing to say but for someone who had been struggling as a player to be able to converse with players at their game and then coach them in a confident way really boosted me a little bit and it gave me the confidence to go forward out of that course I think there were 16 on it only four passed and I was one of the four so I was quite chuffed about that and Ken at the time was ecstatic to be fair I didn't expect him to uh, he was more pleased than probably I was to be perfectly honest but he was a great mentor to me at that particular time he then invited me to work with the school boys as well as the Sunday team and it just sort of transpired from there I was a young coach I was eager and whilst I wasn't really thinking about coaching as a long-term career um, the enjoyment of seeing players get better and do what you were asked is quite a powerful boost to your ego sometimes and I know that sounds a little bit strange but as an 18 19 year old coach getting involved in that and working with that it really gave me a lot of confidence and at that particular time things were starting to develop Bobby Robson was the England manager he was trying to bring in the national school there was talk around building and giving clubs the opportunity to work in or have centres of excellence at the time but to have a centre of excellence you needed someone with a full badge and at that particular time the coaching staff at Norwich no one had a full badge so Ken called me in one day uh, he came into the office and said look we need someone with a full badge I said well, I, ain't got, I ain't got a full badge he says no I want you to go and do your full badge I said Ken I can't afford he said look don't worry about the money don't worry about anything just go out there go and work on the uh, full badge get the experience if you pass great if you don't you ain't lost nothing but I'll sort out all the finances and things like that this was probably 1985 yeah 1985 and uh, I went there and uh, whilst I had the confidence now to go onto a training pitch and work. Again, the level of detail that was needed at that particular time was quite high. Having said that, the full badge consisted of two weeks work. You started off by doing a technical practice involving a number of players. Then you went into a small sided game. And then the following week was 11 v 11s from nine o'clock on the Monday morning to the four o'clock on the Friday afternoon. And having the last letter of the surname was, oh, my la, was Webb. I was the last one on. And I, would, I played every single game up leading up to that, apart from the one before mine. Played in the game leading up to that. 
and I'd got smashed in the face. We were doing <laughs> set pieces and someone volleyed it from about four yards and he, he will never hit a sweeter ball as he did that day. And it just went bang straight in my face. And I just went down like a sack of spuds. And everyone left me. I was on the goal line and the coach is shouting, get out, get out. And I'm laying on the line, half unconscious. And uh, I just remember one, one of the staff, I forget who it was now, just come up to me and say, are you okay? I said, uh, yeah, I think I might just need a couple of minutes because I had a horse, but I'd never been hit by a ball like that in my life. So they took me off, substituted me. And then I had to watch this horror show of this session before mine. And the poor lad, I mean, the players had run themselves to a standstill. And it was the worst session probably. The players had just gone physically and mentally. And there I am trying to recover from uh, this blow on the head and then thinking, oh my God, I've got to go and do the last session. So I think it was Mike Kelly, who was my staff coach, came up to me and said, um, do you want to do it? I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. And I always remember the, fir the first words I said to the players, I said, look, this is the last session. Let's get it over and done with and get ourselves up. And it was like I'd given everyone a shot of adrenaline. For some, it was the last session, but everything, the players ran their socks off for me and it just clicked. And at that particular time, I picked up every coaching point I got my demonstrations right. I got everything right. And the session seemed to fly. You had to do about a 25 to 30 minute session and it felt like it was five minutes. I couldn't believe it, how well it went. So in the end, finished, off we went. Now in them days, you got confirmation of whether you passed or failed a week later in the post. And then I um, got the letter. Couldn't get hold of Ken Brown that Saturday. So in the Monday morning, I went into the club and can um, I passed. Brilliant. Oh, okay. And he was like quite nonplussed about it. And I thought, oh, okay, you've spent all this money on me and you don't be seeing it or showing it. Sort of interest. Or so I thought. Anyway, I'm in the office typing away. And all of a sudden, there's this almighty argument going on upstairs. And I'm thinking, oh my word, what's gone wrong there? And then all of a sudden, my uh, manager came in, the administrator. You better get yourself upstairs. They want you upstairs. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? So I went upstairs. Ken Brown sitting in the office with the company secretary. His name was um, Bert. And he used to be a referee. And he was a l the loveliest fellow you'd ever want to meet. Anyway, he said to me, Ken Brown wants to take you. Take me where? He wants you to go on at the coaching side. What, for today or what? No, you're going to change jobs and work on the coach. You become part of the coaching team. Ken explained what was going to go on. That was the start of um, this coaching journey. I think I was Dave Stringer's assistant at the time. And um, within two months, 
Ken had got me the job as youth team coach. And I think within five days, I'd run out of sessions. <laughs> All the stuff that I had from my um, at full badge course and all the time because up until then I'd relied on Dave Stringer I was just sort of bibs, balls and cones with Dave Stringer but then it was down to me and I was left with the boys in charge of the boys on a daily basis as I say within five days I'd run out of all the sessions that I'd had on the A licence So what were you thinking then at this point you've just finished you've put all that effort in those two weeks up at Lily Shawl you've got your full badge you're now in the thick of it in reality and five days in you've you don't know what to do what's going through your head and how did you deal with it i i wouldn't say i panicked because what was good about norwich at the time was that they had a coaching culture you know it was never around running players around pitches or anything like that everything was done with the ball everything was done in threes and there was a lot of stuff done around um, keep ball sessions, various um, practices that involved patterns of play and practices like that, third man runs and everything. John Bond sort of brought this thing that he'd learned from West Ham where it was just up, back and through and he built different practices around that. So while what I then started to do was I would cunningly place the youth team in a strategic position where we'd play a keep ball session. And at the time, I'd be having one eye on the youth team and then I'd be looking uh, at what the reserves and first team were doing. And then in the afternoon when I had them back, I would um, do what they'd done. And then I'd reflect. And from a very early age, I always used to keep notes about what I was doing and things like that and started to build up a um, repertoire of coaching. But during that time, as I say, there was no internet. So at every opportunity, there was a coaching demonstration going on. You know, you'd have people like Don Howe, Dave Sexton, John Cartwright, Bobby Robson, and other coaching um, personalities, if you like, that would put on court, uh, exhibition sessions. And I would travel the width and the breadth of the country, getting on to them. And I'm sad to say, I was a young coach. I'd just got married, just started a family. And probably, and I'm not ashamed to say it, but I regret that I missed the growing up of my young sons at that particular time. Because if I wasn't taking the team on the Saturday then I would be out looking at other things on the Sunday. So I never really gave enough time to my boys, I don't think. And I think my wife has got to take a lot of credit for the way that the two boys ended up. So although you said earlier on that you never intended to take this coaching lark seriously, it sounds like it wasn't too far down the line before it became almost obsessive to the point that you were... Like you said, you, you missed out on a lot of you young I boys. Said, I said to Joy, my wife, when Ken Brown offered me the job at that particular day, I said, look, he's offered me the job as a youth team coach. I said, it might only last a year, but it's a great opportunity to do something that I loved. I, you know, I loved football. She said, well, give it a go then, if it don't happen. But I was always one of them people that would always give 101% 
to whatever I did. Even as a player, even though I had limited ability, I was always, I always gave me best and I always could look people in the eye and say I'd done everything that I could. That's why I had no regrets about not making it as a footballer. I'd done everything that I could. So it weren't a case of, oh, you know, I should have done this or I should have done that. And that probably as a player, when I looked at some of the players that were around me at that time, I played in the same team as Justin Fashnew. And he was um, such a great role model in the sense of what he did. Why? Well, everything he did, there was a bit of class about him. Someone who was... I remember the first day I was on the bus. We used to have to get up at half past five in the morning, catch the bus at Carrow Road at 6.30, and then drive down to London for 11 o'clock kick-off. And bear in mind, there was no M11 or any motorway system into Norfolk at that time. So you just had the single carriageway, a little bit of dual carriageway. First time I ever got on the bus, I was on sitting on the bus, he came walking through, on the, and he had a huge sheepskin coat. And he looked a million dollars, to be honest. And I didn't have a tie on, because I didn't know at my first game that I had to wear a tie. So he came walking down the bus, and all of a sudden he shouts to the coach, Oh, I see we don't have to wear ties now, Brooksy, do we? And just walked past, and I thought, You. But going down there, he came, sat next to me and said, look, I know it's your debut today. If you're in trouble, just give me the ball. I'll get you at them up. So whatever you do, I've got your back. Don't worry about that. And he led that team just through example. And it was no surprise to me within, um, towards the end of the apprenticeship at eight, 18, that he was already making waves in the first team. I had the utmost respect for the fella. And uh, Justin was a great role yeah. model. Okay. And he gave everything he could at that particular time and deserved everything he got at that early stage. So from my perspective, there were people like Just or Justin who would give everything and deserved everything they got. And then there were players, even at that time, that I felt they felt football owed them a living. And they were really technically gifted players, but were just lazy. And to me, it was a waste of a talent. So when I took the job on as a youth team coach, it was, I wasn't going to, people weren't going to be able to say to me, you didn't do enough or you didn't work hard enough to get where you wanted to get. And I suppose that sort of played a little bit into my philosophy. It was almost I wanted to force the players to become professional footballers, probably at a time more than what they wanted. Because you hadn't? Might be because I hadn't, yeah. But I just didn't want people to waste these God-given talents that the players had been given. And whether I was jealous of the fact that I hadn't been given those talents or that I hadn't progressed because of it, I don't know. But it certainly shaped my early philosophy about leadership and things like that. I want to touch upon something that we were speaking about earlier, which is one of your... Well, we're bouncing around here a little bit, which is fine. So you've just been talking about your, your playing experiences. And you were telling me about a story of a time when you were in the youth team 
um, an important game and things didn't quite go to plan. Yeah, I was lucky enough to work under a coach called John Benson, who'd played for Norwich, coming to the end of his career, or he's at the end of his career, he, he played with John Bond at Bournemouth. I'd started with the youth team and then all of a sudden the news was that we were getting another youth team coach and uh, he came in and um, it was like something just clicked. It was just, I would have ran through brick walls for that fella. Being the young, one of the younger ones in the team or the least experienced ones in the team. I'd just come out of county football and playing in the youth team. And um, the standard was so high in them days in terms of the quality of players that were coming through that I struggled big time. So what was it about him that made you want to run through brick walls? I always felt that he had my back. And we were talking a little while ago about this uh, example of that in terms of um, we were playing Ipswich. And um, so this is for Norwich. This was for Norwich. Yeah. Big derby game. Big derby game, and that was my first experience of a derby game. And it was a br- it was a brutal game. I'd never been involved in any sort of tackling and things like that compared to that game, particular game. I mean, I thought I was, I was quite a hard player to be honest, but I'd never played in as a kid as in an intense game like that. Anyway. The ball had been played through and um, I was chasing back and it was like one of them classic goalkeeper centre-half confrontations. No one was going to decide what to do. And he didn't give me any communication to clear and he didn't tell me whether he was going to play the ball or not. And you're the centre-half and at I'm this the point. Centre-half going, and in the end, I've just man- I've towed it past him. The centre-forward's gone round as poked it in. So hang on a minute, you told me before it was an own goal, are you saying it's well, not now? <laughs> it was practically on the goal line and the fellas just took in and kicked it in. So I'll, I'll give him the credit for that. <laughs> anyway, at that particular time, we had a left-back player and why it was, I have no idea, but the culture at that time was septic. And... He was absolutely vicious with me. And why are you on this pitch? You are useless. I don't know why I'm playing with you. you know. Anyway, we're walking in and uh, Benno comes along, he puts me arms around and said, look, don't worry about that. He says, that happens to every centre half. You, you know, keep going, keep your head up. And he kept his arm round me as we went in the dressing room. So they just keep going, son, you're not not a problem. And everything was calm. And the players could see that he was calm and he was reassuring me. And then all of a sudden, a flick of a switch, he absolutely tore this fullback. He absolutely castigated him. You call yourself a team player, you think you're this, you think you're that, you're the biggest cheap walk on this earth. You want him to help you and then you talk to him like that, you're an absolute disgrace. You will never make it as a footballer while you've got that attitude. 
I'd rather have ten of him than one of you. And from that day on, the boy never said another word to me. And from that moment on, like I said, I would have run through brick walls for him from that perspective. Mm. And uh, I was determined to make sure and try and cut any of that out when I became a coach. But it was difficult at the time because there was this belief, this culture within football that you had to, the only way to toughen people up was to be hard on them. I can still remember to this day the bit of advice that the first team coach gave me when I got the job. And if I'm allowed to say it in its entirety, he said, listen, you've got to treat players like bastards because they'll get you the sack. Mm. Now, unbeknown to me, I mean, you could probably say at first team level that that might be true at times. But because I was such a young, impressionable coach, I assumed that that meant young players as well. Now, I wouldn't say that I treated players like bastards, but I was hard on them. And uh, that led to a lot of conflicts with players. You know, and it was hard for them. But dealing with 16 to 18-year-olds is never an easy situation. I can remember, look, Chris Sutton was probably one of the best footballers that I've had the opportunity to coach. You know, Chris was, like all players between 16 and 18, they are hard work. And being only just, what was I, 24? Knowing how to deal with that type of animal, I was really inexperienced. And Chris mentioned, you know, Chris will probably say, you know, that I was um, trying too hard. And he was probably right, to be perfectly honest, because I was a young coach and I wanted to become better. And um, probably in hindsight, you know, I, I dealt with the, with the um, situation as best I could with the tools that I had. But, it, you know, you, you can look back now and um, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But it was difficult being a young coach, working with between 16 and 18-year-old young men because they, you know, they're, they're starting to find their little niche in life. They want to be footballers. There's a certain arrogance about them because they've been king of the roost in the schools and that, and they're trying to you know, stamp their authority as anyone who's had teenage boys will know. And it probably took me about seven, seven or eight years to come to terms with that. Dealing with 16 to 18 year old boys. I could have had a fight every day with those boys, a different boy a day. I always felt that he was challenging me personally that it was an affront to my authority. But I haven't had two lads myself and knowing what they're like now, you can see. But a, a sports psychologist came in and we were talking. Um, he was a friend of the reserve team manager. And he says, how's the job? I said, God, I said, it's doing my head in. I said, I could have a fight every day with them boys. They're always challenging me. They're always, and I'm trying to work. He says, that's good. I said, what do you mean? He said, 
boys at that age will challenge you. You've got to set boundaries. No matter how hard you think that they're back, they need it. So please don't stop. So whilst I started to understand a little bit more about the psyche of a 16 to 18 year old player, I started to become less, I took it less personally. So it was, it wouldn't have mattered who was in charge. They would have still done the same things. And that was quite a, a weight off my mind at that particular time. That's when I started to look at different aspects of psychology and leadership that probably when I started to change a little bit. Let's jump forward to the last coaching role you had, which was Team GB Paralympics football team to Rio. Yeah. Uh, so you are one of few coaches who've coached a football squad at a Olympic Games. Yeah. Yeah. How did you come into that role and then what I want to do is explore the difference of the culture of football nowadays as compared to those early experiences that you've so vividly talked about so how did you how did you end up with the role as as Team GB Paralympics coach? I've just been in the uh, role uh, as RCDM for about I think it was about a year and then I got a phone call from Les Howie who was uh, head of grassroots division at the FA, uh, my line or my boss at the time, and I was driving along, and he came on the phone. Keith, I want you to take the CP team. CP is cerebral palsy, England cerebral palsy team. And just to explain for uh, the guys listening, tell us a little bit more about what what cerebral palsy is, so they can right. get an understanding. Well, probably people's perception it was exactly the same as what mine was when Les mentioned to me um, about taking the CP squad what I actually heard was Keith we want you to take an England team I didn't hear the CP part so I thought oh my god I've made it they've listened to me about my experience as a youth coach at Norwich and they now want me to take the under 17s I thought god yeah I love it so then he started asking me to get in contact with Jeff Davis and I started to think, Jeff Davis, what's he got to do with the England teams? Thought that was um, John Peacock and people like that. So I said, who is Jeff Davis? And he said, um, oh, he's in charge of disability football at the FA. So now I'm thinking, oh, okay. What's this CP squad then? What's this cerebral palsy? So he said, look, I've not got time to discuss it with you, um, but speak to Jeff, see what you think. So I made arrangements to meet Jeff at Stansted Airport. So we meet at the hotel, and I'm sitting at the hotel, sitting in the chair, and then I give him a little short... uh, version of my uh, coaching journey and then he started to talk about CP football and the fact that it was um, for cerebral palsy players that it was a seven aside game and I started to sink a little bit deeper in my chair and then he started talking about there's no offsides that each player has a classification there are four classifications 
you can only have one classification on the pitch at one time and you must have one classification on the pitch at all time. What, what do you mean by that? You can only have one classification on the so pitch? So in CP football, each player is classified depending on the severity of their disability. So um, five classification is the severest form of... So it goes up from... Five to eight. Five to eight, okay. Right. So if you've got a classification of five, that's the most severe disability. So it would affect you in both sides of your body and you'd, you'd find it really difficult to walk and run at any sort of, any sort of way. You start to get a classification of six where the severity is a little bit less, still in both feet, but it's less severe. Then you start coming to a seven, which is what they call a hemiplegic, where um, you're affected down one side of the pitch, or someone one side of the body. So you'll know if someone's got or would have been classified because they would have held their arm differently. And then you have a classification of an eight, which is more often than not an acquired injury, i.e., uh, a brain trauma or a stroke. And they're invariably your most mobile and best players. So when he started to talk about the complexities of the game, I'm thinking to myself, I know nothing. I'm not going to do it. Because I just hadn't been involved in anything like that before. I hadn't been um, around disability in any shape or form. I had no experience of dealing with that type of player. So for me, I'm completely going in there with two hands tied behind my back, a blindfold and one foot uh, tied to the other. So I said, look, I'm gonna, I'll come to the first training session, which was on the uh, January. And this is 2013? 13. So it was, I got the call in December from Les. So the first uh, training session was in January. Now... It's quite important in so far as I'd been with the FA a period of time and I was lucky enough to work with uh, my coaching compadre in the East, Jamie Godbold. And it was around the delivery of the youth modules. And um, I happen to think Jamie Godbold is one of the best five to 11 coaches in the country and the way he's coaching philosophy around the uh, key messages around at this particular time mod three mod two and mod one really had an impact on me i'd always been someone who had tried to give players ownership but i didn't really know why i'd be prepared to give players ownership but Working with him, seeing him work with players, really opened my eyes up as to how players might feel if they give, or how they might react and how they might play if they're given ownership. So when I started on that first session, I was determined to say, right, I'm going to give them ownership and I'm going to try and learn and put into practice all the stuff that are delivered when I was helping him deliver the Mod 3s. Well, that first coaching session, or that first coaching weekend we had, 
it was like something out of Coach Car. <laughs> With CP players um, and the people that have got the acquired traumas, their re- rationale and the way they react to pressure is totally different to what players, mainstream players, would be able to do. In what way? Well, they aren't able, because of the frontal lobe injuries that they might have acquired, they aren't able to reason things as quickly or as well as an able-bodied person. And that normally manifests itself in anger. So if someone uh, misplaced a pass in the game, and we're talking about playing on the indoor area at St George's, if someone misplaced a pass, it weren't a case of putting his hand up and saying, okay, so, yeah, fine. It was almost like, come on, we're going to have a fight. And honestly, I'm looking at the start and I'm thinking, oh my God, what have I let myself in for? But I just observed and I, I didn't bite in any sort of shape or form. But what was really good was that the next month we got together, we were at one of the purples that we went to San Diego in America to play at the uh, Olympic Village. Uh, Olympic training village I should say in San Diego and that's when I thought right you're now going to take control of these so the very first thing I said was right we looked back and we reflected on the training at uh, St George's the month before and through questioning it they were coming up with the answers that I wanted so I was being quite cute in the way the questions that I asked so what were the answers that you wanted I wanted them to come up with what they were poor at so it weren't okay okay what were you put what did we what were you poor at what and you're not very good at it was right where do you think we could improve and I got it in my own mind where I wanted to go with it so they started to talk about well we weren't very good at possession okay so what sort of things have we got to do to get better as a team. I weren't too sh- worried about developing the individual because I just didn't have them long enough to be able to do that. It was around the team, the we. So what have we got to do to make us better passers of the ball? So, and it kept going, how do you think we might be able to do that? And all of a sudden, they started to come up with it. I said, okay, right, so here's what we'll do then. If you're in agreement, we'll do this today or later on. We'll do this tomorrow, this tomorrow, and this. And all of a sudden, they could see some rationale as to why they did it, uh, what they were going to do. And all of a sudden, the motivational aspect was taken care of because they'd bought into the fact that they were going to do things that they wanted to do then it seemed to me that they were going to be more motivated so from my perspective then then it was just a case of right i'm going to treat you how i treated professional footballers so i set high standards but without putting the players under pressure so everything i asked them to do i asked them to do the best that they could give us an example so let me think uh we had one player center back who had the heart of a lion uh, and still involved with them 
um, but his distribution was um, poor from the back. So I never ever um, criticised his bad passing. And there was probably three or four. I waited until I could see he'd made a really good pass. And then I really did go overboard with the praise. That's exactly what I'm looking for. That is different class. That's the type of thing I'm looking for from you. You keep doing that, you'll do for me. But that's not the Keith Webb who oh, started no. coaching. No, no, no. It would have been stop, stand still right now. Look, when you get the opportunity, I want you to get the ball out of your feet so you can get your head up earlier so you can see you can pass to. Right, now, here's the ball. Show me. Bang. And for me, at that particular time, that style of coaching was all I knew because that's all I'd been taught. Right. Coach education was about the coach going in there and looking for mistakes and then putting the mistake right. Now, all of a sudden, since I'd come into working with Jamie and working with other coaches around the key messages around the mod uh, the youth modules all of a sudden now being able to wait for someone to do something what i was looking for and to be perfectly honest that was the first time that i'd actually done it in a as a coach and all of a sudden to see that boy's confidence grow was it changed me as a person, not just watching him do it, but to see those players blossom. It was almost like I'd given them, um, I wanted to create a culture where they really want that they would have experienced nothing like it in their life as a sportsman. And we're talking about elite sportsmen in that cerebral palsy field. But I wanted to create a centre of excellence where they wanted to come to, where they were going to be treated like footballers were treated, but in a really positive environment. So what were some of the things off the pitch that you did to try and create this culture that you were looking for? Because I know that we've, we've spent a fantastic afternoon with Dr John Alder, who has opened our eyes to his work around culture and working with the, the New Zealand Rugby League team and he's someone that we really want to get on, on the show Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. So you've, we've spent the afternoon listening to Dr John Alder. What were some of the things that you did off the pitch then? That Well, at the time, um, I had a sports uh, psychologist, Jamie Barker. We wanted the players to come up with a set of values that they could adhere to that were um, player-centred and a set of beliefs that this is what we're trying to or this is where we want to get to. So like a common goal? Yeah. What was that? It was to leave a legacy for players who were coming up behind this group of players that they wanted to be in a position which would inspire the next generation of CP players to want to be the best that they could be. So what was the process that you went through? We, well, we would sit them down and we'd have meetings with them and we would sit down and talk about um, where we wanted to get to, how were we going to do that, what we had to do for each other and it was really just giving them ownership of it 
I was fortunate enough to have um, Jack Rutter, the England captain at the time, and what an inspiration he is to, um, you know, players with disability. He's truly inspiring, you know. There's a there's him a player that um, had the world at his feet. If you you know, young professional, mm. career cut short due to um, an incident off the pitch, but through CP football has found a new direction and a new um, life. One of the biggest challenges I had for with him at to the start was, and this was part of the enjoyable part of it was to get him to appreciate that he couldn't do it on his own that he needed them players um, and he needed them more than probably what he appreciated because being the player that he is he is world class in, the, in that field but because he's world class he's targeted but what he has got is such a great physique about him, his physicality, he's able to run all day and because of the brain injury where he has trouble probably is rationalising things so when things go against him sometimes he gets frustrated. So when he's hanging on to the ball too much the players will target him and because of their lack of... Um, coordination sometimes they foul him a lot and because he wants to hold on to the ball too much it slows him down when he's in possession of the ball so knowing what you knew about Jack and knowing how he responded to mistakes or when things didn't go his way what did you build into his program of work in the time that you, that you work with him because let me just place us here you've moved on from England at this point right and you're now with Team GB yeah so you were you, you started off with the England CP team yeah. and now you're now you're with Team GB and we're 2013 at this point still no we're still with England at this particular right, time right okay um, great the Great Britain thing didn't come till about 20 late 2015 2016 okay I took, spent a lot of time with Jack talking to him about the advantages and trust in other people in terms of give them the ball and then use your um, physical attributes to get away from the people that were marking you. So for him to be prepared to um, play the ball to someone and then get it back was a big ask of him at that particular time. But we we spent a lot of time we did a lot of training and he could see the type of training that myself and Tony Elliott were putting on and he responded in a really positive way being an ex-pro we treated the players like they were professional that they were elite players the practices we put on were practices that I'd put on with the professionals at Norwich so what was the difference the difference obviously is in the quality of the and the speed of the ball and things like that but while the um, the practices probably weren't as of the highest quality when you're talking about professionals and international footballers there was still a an attempt to get better at what they where they were and um, the types of training sessions that we put on 
were very game-like, um, problem-solving games. So Jack, you're only allowed to have two touches. What are you going to do to get in possession of the ball there? And, and why did you put that constraint on well, Jack? I wanted Jack, as I say, because of the fact that he didn't trust the players a lot. Because of his ability, he wanted to run with the ball all the time. And he's got the ability to, a high percentage of the time, do what he wants to do. But once he starts to, uh, it doesn't go his way, he found it difficult to adapt. But the more we put him into that situation, the more he started to understand why we were doing it, the more then he was prepared to do it. And then the players, other players saw that and they could see that I was giving them the um, confidence to say, look, you're part of this team. Jack, they're part of this team. And I used, utilised the uh, Michael Jordan, Phil Jackson. I was just about to bring that up. Scenario, it sounds very know. similar. Absolutely. And it was, Jack, you've got to make them players better. The better you make them, the better they're going to make you look. And I'd read Phil Jackson's uh, Sacred Hoops, Sacred Hoops um, many years ago, uh, and I just worked on that, mm. and he responded brilliantly. So how did you end up in Rio? Well, we played in the World Championships uh, at St George's, um, finished fifth. Out of? Out of uh, 16, the highest they'd finished in the World Championships for a long, long time. And What were the previous finishes, can you remember? Uh, I think there was a sixth and eighth. Okay. Um, but according to um, Jeff, that was the highest that they'd finished. And there was still some debate as whether we'd qualified or not. But you had to finish. We thought if you finished in the top six, that that was automatic qualification for the real, for the Great Britain squad. But um, you know, we had to finish fifth because of other th complexities around the um, teams that were left out. So Jeff told me the Paralympic uh, team advertised for the role of the uh, seven-a-side coach. Jeff asked me to apply, which I did. And, um, and then we went from there. And I was determined then to try and put into place this ownership, this culture of players making decisions and taking charge of it talk me through the application process and what did you have to do and how, how did how did you have to demonstrate that you would be an effective leader within uh, Team GB it wasn't really that formal uh, an interview to be honest um, I, w I forget the name of the lady who came along we, we did it on um, FaceTime because of the constraints I had with the job at the time I was doing something so he said we'll do it on FaceTime uh, and it was just around what I um, what I think was needed to be able to give the Great Britain squad a chance of a medal and um, I put one or two ideas forward there was only the other person who applied was um, Andy Smith at who was, was the Scotland coach but then I think he dropped out so really it was just a case of Keith we want you to do it in which case I jumped at the chance to do it 
the good thing was is that they invited Andy Smith to come and be the assistant coach. I had an assistant coach, Tony Elliott, who sort of worked as my goalkeeping coach and assistant manager. But it felt that with the numbers that we went through, um, we would invite another outfield coach to come along and do it. And Andy proved to be a great asset leading up to the time we went out to Rio. So I want to go through that period between landing the role with Team GB and ended up in Rio. Yeah. If you can talk to us about squad selection, how did you then start to form a new culture where you're working from players from just England to the, the home nations? So talk us through the processes that went through there as well. Well, I think... And it was interesting listening to the chap this afternoon talk about the cultures and things like that. We started 18 months before Rio. So we'd organised, we'd got, a, we'd selected a crop of around 28 players from uh, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And we whittled them down. We, we played games, we put put training sessions on, how were they in regards to their ability to absorb what the tactics we were going to use and how coachable they were. We were looking at their mobility because one of the things that um, I was determined to do, having seen the best teams in the world, the one thing that strikes me is the... Um, mobility of the world's best teams so I was determined to have people that were mobile so we had uh, a period of time where we'd bring every, everyone together and during that period of time it would also be well you know we'd need to cut the squad a little bit so we started to whittle it down till we started to get to about probably nine months and then I had to start making some real serious decisions. And that was probably the hardest period of my football career. Insofar as that I was having to tell people that I'd built really good relationships with England, that I wasn't going to take them to Rio. And I always felt at that particular time that I should tell them early. And I got to the point where, you know, some really outstanding individuals, people, um, who'd run through brick walls for me, I was having to tell them that I wasn't going to take them. What was the process that you went through to tell them? So it would be a case of sitting down. One to one. One to one. And say, look. These are the um, parameters I'm setting in terms of the type of player that I want. And because of your disability, you're not going to be able to reach them standards that I'm looking for. So I'm telling you now, because when I do make the final cut, you'll find yourself probably in a situation where these will be the reasons why you won't be on the plane. And to be fair to them, wasn't an issue and I didn't expect them to be an issue because of the type of person that they were and each man to their own took it like the man I thought they would so we get to a situation probably about six months before we're going out to Rio so we've got the squad of 14 players with a couple on standby in case of any injuries 
So now we've got to try and build a culture and a set of values that we want players to adhere to. Now, with hindsight, I think we should have done that at the start. But I wasn't sure how um, we could instill and um, build a culture around players that probably might not have made the flight. So it was thought that once we've got the squad narrowed down to the 14 that we wanted, that we should start to do it then. And probably it wasn't long enough for those values and beliefs to become part of the, if you like, our DNA, where players would live by those values and beliefs. Which, you know, as much as um, we'd seen a little bit of success, because I introduced the England DNA to the England CP squad, and we used that as part of our values and beliefs around who we were. Um, with the GB squad because we had the Scots boys the Irish boys and the English boys we had to fight come from a different way now trying to integrate the three nations uh, without using the England DNA so we had to come up with a new set of values and beliefs and you know as much as you as a coach you think yeah they buy into it I can't say with hand on heart that probably all of them did buy into it. There were certainly shared experiences that we had as a group of players that I've never witnessed in my life. We'd finished all the preparation. Um, this was the last camp we had before we went to Bisham Abbey for the week preparation and then embarking on the real trip. We got everybody in the room and everyone had to sit in a chair and explain why they were on, why they were going to give their best for real through their experiences that they've had up in their in their lives up until then. And I've never ever ever been in a room so emotionally charged as that. Boys were breaking down in tears. I remember one boy. Um, saying he was glad to be part of this group because this is the first group that made him feel wanted. Tears are down my eyes. I'm looking at my two assistants and tears are down. And each player had a story. You mentioned before about when you were selecting the players, you were looking for players that were, quote, coachable. What were some of the features of coachable players for you? We did a lot of problem solving. Such as? So it would be, right, You we'd play the game and then all of a sudden I'd set my scenario. You're one down, there's five minutes to go. How are you going to deal with that without conceding another goal? Just to see how they dealt with that pressure. Then I'd take a player off and see how they dealt with that. And it was the ones who could deal with it, who we then observed and watched them and see the ones who could deal with it, some of the ones who couldn't deal with it. And that gave me a little bit of an insight. The other coaches observed as well and we sort of discussed how they did, how they didn't do. And there were times when obviously it kicked off because as I said before, they react differently. And 
as we started to whittle it down, they started to buy into what we were doing and they started to react differently. And they started to come up with answers. They'd always have their little moments and I was always aware of that. That's, you know, they'd go back. So we'd make three steps forward and then there'd be a step or two back. Then we'd go another three, four. So it was a case of scaffolding those challenges and those problem-solving opportunities to make sure that we never made it hard enough where they would just throw in the towel. Mm -hmm. We always put them on the edge. And we always made sure that the situations might occur in the game at important times and how they were going to deal with it. Tell us the story about Spain. Right, so part of the um, process of dealing with tournament football and giving ourselves a situation. The, the governing body of the international CP football had a tournament for teams that were going to Rio. The only team that didn't attend was Russia, for whatever reasons. Anyway, um, we, were, we were playing Ukraine and I said to my assistant Tony, I said, We've got to do something that really tries to shake them up a little bit. So I said, we're going to act as if we've missed the bus. So they've got to deal with the game scenario on their own. I didn't tell anyone else. I didn't tell any other members of staff. So when we got off the bus, we um so you've got the bus behind the players at this point have you sorry the no we got to the venue yep and we just walked away and where were the players at this point players were um walking towards the um changing rooms and i just said to one of the players you haven't got us now you're on your own you went okay and i didn't tell any of the members of staff I wanted to see how they reacted. And this was a game against Ukraine, who were one of the favourites for the medal podium. And probably with hindsight, I should have told the uh, performance director, Jeff Davis, but I didn't. And the players just got on with it. Players just got on, they did the warm-up. Um, Jack Rutter took the team. He took the team talk. He'd sorted out the set pieces. And uh, probably the only one who probably was under a bit more pressure was um, the staff, because they didn't know what was going on. How long had you had the squad at this point? Oh, we, we had them, um, this was about four, three months before we were leaving. So how long had you been with them up to this point? Um, probably a year. A year. Yeah. So had you done that in week one or oh, I wouldn't have done it in week one because of the um, the circumstances the players we didn't I didn't know the players I didn't know which ones I could trust which ones I couldn't trust who would handle that pressure who couldn't handle that sort of pressure but during the build-up we would always like I said before we'd let the players um, if we didn't have a game on the Sunday the play we would play an in uh, in-house game the players took the team. So you pick the team, you pick the formation. 
you pick how the set pieces are going to go. You take the team. Me and Tony just sat and watched. But you didn't just sit and watch, though, did you? No, we were observing. We were watching who was doing what, how they were reacting. And then probably sometime during the game, I might pull a player off just to see how they would react. Then I'd put them back on, take another player off. What are you going to do in this situation? We took a defender off. How are you going to deal with that? You've got 30 seconds to deal with it. Put a forward, we took a forward off. What are you going to do? How are you going to attack without leaving yourself exposed? Because this notion of ownership is one that is being popularised in coaching recently. And I think to some extent, there's some that believe it's, well, it means allowing the players to put the cones down or bring the bibs in or look after the balls and and it, and and some may see it as a as an opportunity for a break or a rest as a coach yeah that's not the case here is it oh no 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 there was a purpose to it i wanted the players to i've got this belief that there's only so much well if any so much a manager can do as the game's going on he might be able to have an impact at half time but while the game was going on, I wanted my players to be able to um, react in, in the moment because they might see things that I can't see on the pitch. So we would do different defending formations depending on the sort of team we were up against. We played Ukraine in my very first tournament where we played with a, two lines of three. Now, because we went to... I went to the Paralympics and I asked them how do you want to defend against the best teams we'd had a really great result in the European Championships when I first took over and we we were about one minute away from beating Ukraine which would have sent shockwaves through CP football in the end they scored with one minute to go um, and then they wouldn't come out of their half to attack after that they just took the ball back in their half and just kept it um, so we had a block of now all that did was invite the opposition onto us a little bit and the quality of play around some of the Russian and Ukraine's Ukraine's not so much but Russia um, could open us up Ukraine couldn't and found that a bit difficult but I said to the players before we go out how do you want to defend against these teams and to a man, they said, we want to press them. So we said, OK, we want to press them. So we'll play a high um, tempo game in their half, press them. We won't give them a chance to play out from the back. And um, we played a way which we hadn't done before. And in fact, we changed the um, tactics the day before and we threw something in that we'd never tried before in a game. Which was? Which was we were going to try, instead of... Um, if you know the game of futsal around the defending strategies of using diamonds, we decided to use the diamond um, within the seven-a-side sphere. And because of Tony Yellett's experience in futsal, and how the other te the best teams were utilising futsal in their strategies, we decided to go with that. And 
it worked a treat, but they just had a player just who could do something a little bit more than what our players could do. So we went in at half time, uh, playing that way, one down. But because Ukraine hadn't had many um, goal scoring chances, the players came in with a bit of confidence. And then within a minute of the um, restart, we're 1 1. And now we're in the, the, the uh, ascendancy. So we, even though we lost the game 2-1, they dealt with the complexities of changing tactics as quickly as that, where I think if I'd have done that early on, it would have thrown them completely. They'd have been confused and they would have not been able to adapt. And we could have ended up losing that game maybe 6 or 7-1. But what they did do, they had that resilience to deal with that high pressure situation and do it in a calm way and kept doing it mm. and kept to the game plan. So that for me was uh, as rewarding, uh, even though we lost, I came off that pitch proud of them because of the way that they dealt with the situation. So on to Rio. One of the th things that you hear from many coaches who operate in tournaments or in Olympics is that camp environment. How did you go about setting the environment within what I can only imagine is a quite a chaotic Olympic or Paralympic village? Um, what Talk us through those experiences. It was quite strange really because we were, I'm just trying, we were a team within a team. So we were probably the only team in the Great Britain squad. So our culture, as you like, was a lot different because a lot of, I think the, they had, no, I tell you, they had the um, basketball squad, but it was a strange environment in the sense that each sport seemed to be cocooned in their own little bubble. And we certainly kept ourselves, even though we were uh, interested in what other sports were doing and the medal count kept rising and it began. I never felt a close affinity to them. And I think the players also found it a little bit difficult with that, insofar as that we kept ourselves much to ourselves. Would you change anything now if you had the chance Probably again? Probably not. Probably not. And I'm not sure whether it was odd... That, uh, our fault or the um, the um, culture that the Great Britain squad had set. I mean, they, to be fair, the Paralympic uh, Association tried to do everything they could to en enable this team culture. Every player was given the same kit. We were given brand new suits, loads of kit to wear and, you know, made to feel like a team. However, you know, you always felt that if you weren't in it within a medal situation, that they looked at you a little bit, I won't say down, that wouldn't be the right word, but it was around what those medals and those people that with the medals, I felt, were um, looked upon differently. Mm. Carry on through the tournament then, so what... First game. First game, we've lost 2 1 to Ukraine. The next game, we've lost 2 1 against Brazil. And I've never been more prouder of a group of players. The players have given everything, 
against teams that the closest they'd ever come to Brazil in the last Olympic must have beat them 8-1 Ukraine beat them 6-1 personal bests every single player in that squad gave way and above what they were capable of doing so we've lost to the two so we've got no chance of going for a medal now so we're playing for the next the fifth and sixth place play Ireland a team that had with England had been really everyone had been saying cool, we're close to you know Ireland us Holland very close uh, we, we were England we beat them 2-0 in um, the in the Paris we we beat them 5-1 and they were lucky to get one to be honest and then we play Argentina and um, I picked the team um I said to the team before we went out, here's your choice. I said, we can go out and we can, I can, you know, we can play as well as we can, but we'll give everyone a game and it'll be a bit of a, you know, everyone gets it. Or we can go and we finish as high as we can. What do you want to do? We want to finish high as we can. Because we really did feel that we had a chance of getting on the podium. I said, now, you know what that entails? I said, that will entail me saying to you that there could be one or two of you who don't get on the pitch. Now, if you're saying to me collectively that's what you want to do, then fine. I'm going to give you an opportunity to sit down for 10 minutes in this room on your own. And I'm going to come back in 10 minutes and I want you to tell me what you want to do. How long prior to the game was this? This was before we went out. This was in the changing room? This or? was before we flew out to Rio. Okay, so you were almost, you were already setting the scenario of this could setting happen. setting the scenario. What do you want? Do you want me to give everyone a game? Or do you want us to try and win and get to the highest position we can? Came back in the room. Keith, we want to finish as high as we can. I said, okay. Then I'm telling you now that there'll be people that won't start people that won't get on the pitch so going to the Paralympics playing Argentina we're winning 2-0 and this is for 5th and 6th so this would have been the highest position that they would have finished in the Paralympics so we're 2-0 up Tony put the goalkeeper on young goalkeeper the progress he'd made over 18 months was remarkable and he'd really worked hard but I had probably one of the world's best goalkeepers as a young lad as well on the pitch already on the pitch already so I'm thinking 2-0 mm, up 10 minutes to go I said okay get him warmed up crack boys get oh, yeah his mum and dad are on the uh, in the stand playing away and uh Team break away, referees give what I could only assume was a dodgy decision and one of the players has reacted. One of the players has got sent off. So I'm now thinking to myself, do I take my top goalkeeper off and play him with the man down or do I put my inexperienced keeper in and hope that they don't score? We're down and that the heat is the pressure, the heat. And I've looked at him. And I've looked at Tony and 
I've thought back to what the player said and I've said no. Now that boy probably will never go to another Olympic or Paralympic game again. Um, but I've made the decision for the benefit of the team. Probably broke that boy's heart by not getting him on the pitch. But I felt I owed it to the players to make sure that we finished in the highest position we could. So what happened next last 10 minutes? Last 10 minutes. After the sending off. We ended up coping quite well. The keepers had to make one save, but... Apart from that, um, the team have adapted well. Um, they've kept their calm up until the final whistle and it all breaks loose and then all the frustration of those last 10 minutes have transpired and then there's a little bit of a fracas at the end. Um, but that's a, that's a side issue. Um, the decision has rested easy with me. I can live with the decision because it weren't a decision where I've gone back on my word and the team knew what it, the repercussions were of making that. There was one or two little bits on, on Twitter about why I didn't put the boy on from the family and I can understand their um, disappointment and I'd be exactly the same if I was in their shoes. But I just felt at that particular time that I weren't prepared to jeopardise the players, the team standing for putting the player on. <laughs> so that was a really hard call that I had to make. And, and to me, you know, that's when people, it's when you've got to make them big decisions that you find out what you're like as a leader. Yeah. I could have said, go on, give him a go, let's play. And probably if I'd have been as a youth coach, that would have I would have done that in a youth team game, but I felt that this was the top end, the elite end. I felt that it was a different mindset from me. So throughout all those experiences, you now found yourself as a coach educator. Yeah. How has the culture in coach education changed since you first started, and what are the the principles that you're trying to get coaches to consider when they come on a course with you nowadays? When I first started, it was about what the coach... The coach was the star of the show. The coach would walk on the pitch and players expected... Um, players expected the everything to come from the players, uh, from the coach. All the knowledge was around what he... Um, what he knew and he was the one leading the team and he was the one who was going to give all the players everything that they needed to go out and win the game. I think as I've grown, as I've evolved, as I've seen different, been involved with different leaders in work and how the coaching methodology has changed and understanding and doing some research and looking at the theoretical um, side of uh, academia um, understanding that people bring with them experiences that they will have experienced outside of football but can have an impact in football that it's not just about the coach it's about the person dealing with the person getting to know the person, what makes the person tick, 
building that relationship, building that rapport, getting to know them, um, and creating a dialogue, an honest dialogue that people are receptive to taking and being critiqued, not criticised, but critiqued in and around what they might be able to bring to the experience of becoming a better coach. If I was to say that the coaches that you educate and develop are partly a reflection of you as an educator, what would you hope for them to... Take away. Yeah. Um, I would like to think that um, I've become more humble as I've got older and that I've been prepared to open myself up and show a vulnerable side where in the past it was more about being bravado and being seen as the strong font of all knowledge, that Churchillian leader. But I think I've gained more, not respect, that's not the word, but probably more of an impact on people once I've opened myself up to my vulnerabilities mm -hmm. and understanding that I don't know everything and being acceptant of one's own failings, if you like. But at the same time, um, understanding that there's not a right or wrong way of doing things, there's just a way. And the only way that you are going to find out the right way for you is to go out on the pitch and experience it. Because all my life, I've never had the opportunity that I've had now in the latter stages of my coaching career to expose myself to research and um, academia as an add-on. Everything that I've learned has been through a tacit form of knowledge in the sense that it's been an experience that I've had that has taught me lessons whether it's been coaching and making a mistake, whether it's been in a personal relationship with a player and making mistakes. Um, so everything has been sort of a tacit form of knowledge accruing where um, now, you know, people, I feel sometimes people come onto courses and just want to get as many qualifications as they can in as um, quick, quick as time. And while you might get the qualification quickly, you're not necessarily going to become a level three coach just because you've got a level three qualification. You know, it takes time on the pitch. You get better at what you do. You reflect on what you do. You reflect on the good things you've done. You reflect on the good things the players have done and how you've interacted with them and get better that way. It sounds like what you're saying is there's really no substitute for making those mistakes. No. What it also sounds like you're saying is the importance of the coach owning those mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not being afraid to say to the players, what do you think? I think I'm, or I'm struggling here, what do you think? It's that vulnerability, that being prepared to say, look, I don't know the answer. Because in my experience, you know, the experiences that I've had with the teams that I've run, and especially 
um, you know, through experience that I've had in the latter part of my career, um, that once you give that trust to the players, they will give it back to you tenfold. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll see you more, not as a coach, but they'll see you as a person. Like you're what, seeing them as a person. And that trust goes a long, long way. And that's the only sort of, that's been the big learning for me. Um, and if I'd have probably known that uh, when I was um, a younger coach starting out, I'm not saying my experience or my life would have changed any differently, but one or two experiences might have been different. But it's gone, I had to go through them mistakes to end up where I am today. Mm. That was going to be my next question in that I don't know many coaches with as broad and deep an array of experiences as yourself. And if you were to go back and give yourself some advice when you were first starting out, maybe what would that be? Because I know that you've you've certainly evolved and, and changed and you've had a, all these experiences have, have contributed to that. So if you were to go back to that youth team coach starting out at Norwich City, what would you say to him? Enjoy it more. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the experience. I felt as a young coach, I was under a lot of pressure to prove myself. I felt I was under the uh, pressure to um, produce players to um, make sure that I kept in a job. And that put an added pressure on me. But those pressures were probably only self-inflicted. I never felt as a coach pressurised by any of the managers that I worked for. The only pressure that I put on or the only pressure that was on was what I put on myself. And I probably haven't in, probably didn't enjoy the, or take time to enjoy those moments where you thought, yeah, it was always, what's the next stage? What's the next stage? I remember winning the league um, for Kingsley. First experience, I've been in the pro game 28 years. And um, within Fifteen months of coming out of the program, I'd won the Southern Premier League, and we went to Merthyr Tydfil, and it one of the best days of my life. But I don't think I really enjoyed it. It was right. What am I going to do next? And if I was going to tell my younger self what it is, it would be to enjoy the journey. Mm -hmm enjoy the mistakes enjoy well not enjoy the mistakes but understand they're going to be part of your part of coaching but enjoy the moment yeah want to move on to some questions that we've had in from listeners so these are regular questions that we're trying to ask every guest who comes on the show what's the best investment that you've made in yourself as a coach probably time I made the conscious decision that I was going to try and become the best that I could be. And the investment that I made in myself was I've got to be prepared to give up time to go and seek out new experiences or seek out better people with more knowledge and more experiences than I had 
so I could gain from their um, knowledge to bring back to my players. You know, the internet just wasn't about when I first started, so I could have just said, look, I'm going to rest on my laurels and um, just do what I've got to do. But I think I invested in myself, I invested in the time, invested in time away from the family. And I'm, it's not something that I'm um, unhappy with. It was just the fact that because I'd done that, I think it's helped shape the person that I am today. Mm. What have you seen, read or watched recently that has an Im- had an impact on your way of thinking? Um, it hasn't been recently. I think one of the best books I ever read was uh, Clive Woodward's Winning, just after they won the World Cup. That opened new ideas um, around bringing different um, thoughts around how players could take leadership roles and the um, understanding of giving players and building leaders within that. So that had quite an impact on from when I read it to how I changed my style as a coach. But what has really opened my eyes is just um, getting involved in this PG Sir Ed that we've been doing and being exposed to research and being able to think, well, hang on a minute, while people are saying that, that's not necessarily true from what I've experienced. And being able to look at things in a different light, different ways of leadership. I've never ever really thought of myself, you know, why we do things. We just, as leaders, we just do them. But having gone into, you know, some of the work we've done around the topic of leadership and being able to look at the different um, styles of leadership the in-depth understanding now around what certain leadership styles bring has been really refreshing for my part. Mm. Likewise, yeah. You know, and I think I wish I'd have had it earlier, Um, you know, to be brutally honest. Um, But again, it's part of the journey. The saying is when the pupil's ready, the teacher will come. So, you know... I'm in the sort of twilight of my career as a coach now, but it's given me a new impetus, if you like, to go forward and uh, utilise this new knowledge and watching it and develop when we're delivering as coaches. And last question. This can be one significant thing or a number of things, if you like. You can summarise it however you like. Throughout your coaching career, what have you changed your mind about? And that can be since you started or it can be something recently. What have I changed my mind about? That's a difficult question, that is. Um, What have I changed my mind about? I think as we get older, we evolve and we have certain beliefs. Our beliefs are stemmed, I think, from our environment that we're at. And I've been lucky to been involved in different areas of um, coaching, working with young players, working with professionals, working at first team level, 
working in um, disability. I don't know whether I've changed other than just by gaining knowledge and thinking, yeah, well, maybe this is the way forward, we'll try that. Not well, that hasn't worked or something like that, but I think we're a product of our own environment that we're around. I just think we evolve as we get surrounded by different people. So what I might have believed in um, back in those early days, I don't think I've changed my mind. It was just the fact that that was how it was done. But being getting older and getting more life skills, getting more um, knowledge about life, and then being around certain situations, I think you just evolve as a person. And I'm not saying I would change, but I think I've evolved. And um, I've been fortunate enough to be in some really great environments where I think I've changed for the better or evolved for the better. There's probably a better way yeah. of saying it. You know, at the time, did I think it was right to be the style of coach that I was? Yeah, because that was how I was taught. That was how I was um, brought up at that particular time. Do I believe now that there's a different way of doing things? Yes, why? Because I've been exposed to those teachings, I've experimented with the teachings and they've worked. So at this minute in time, they're what I um, believe to be true. So would I change it? Wouldn't change the situation I'm in now. So I'm not sure that I would change anything to be perfectly honest. Brilliant. We had planned to go into some discussion about our experiences on the seven yeah. with the rowing today, which once again will remind the coach mentors that we were victorious in. Absolutely. My thinking is this is a good place to pause it and uh, and, and close this off. We're, it's 10.30. It's way past our bedtime. <laughs> My thought is... We're back in on Sunday night. We've got an A licence starting here at St George's Park. We'll probably have some of the staff who were with us in Worcester today on that. My my um, proposal is that we get yourself and another one or two of those guys in to discuss the experiences around coach behaviours from our, our day rowing this morning. How does that sound? That sounds great. It'd be great to get... Um, other people's views on the experience um, it was a great day uh, we were exposed to different things and I think it showed um, that people respond in different ways to different um, leadership styles and that certainly came out in some of the uh, exercises and activities we were doing so it should hopefully be a good conversation Fantastic, Keith this has been so much more than I even thought it was possible. I can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks for uh, being so open, honest, and like you say, vulnerable. Some incredible stories that you've shared with us there. So thanks once again, and uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Jack. Cheers. Questions. Cheers. Excellent. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please help spread the word or leave us a review on iTunes. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. 
You can reach me on Twitter at JackWalton1. And don't forget to follow Liverpool FA at Liverpool underscore CFA. See you next time. What you're saying is there's really no substitute for making those mistakes. No. And what I'm also picking up... <laughs> oh, hello. It's alright, no problem. Sorry. We're nearly done. Is anybody in? It's alright. Good job we can edit this. <laughs> <laughs>